We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. And say the keyword. The following program is sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth from Philip DeCourcy. Sin must never be allowed to blind us to the glories of his grace. There is forgiveness He does restore the repentant. He does use those who think they can't be used again. Have you messed up? Well, God works with mud. His hand is dirty with messy people. He can still make something of you. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy reminds us that we all have messy lives, and every one of Jesus' disciples struggled with sin and compromise, just like us. Now, even though it's December, we're listening in on a conversation Jesus had with his inner circle at the Last Supper. It's a comfort to know that we, too, can receive God's grace and forgiveness when we come to him with repentant hearts. That's the power of the new covenant. Now, with today's message, here's Philip. It's a message I've entitled, There Will Be Blood, because here the Lord Jesus Christ addresses the issue of his death and its meaning. So let's come to our text, Mark 14, verses 17 to 21. Judas, Peter, the disciples, Judas's betrayal, the disciples' failure, Peter's pride and denial, it'll all be reintroduced later on. So I'm just going to touch briefly on what I'm calling the prediction, verses 17 through to 21. It's evening now on the Thursday night. We're bumping up against Friday. And so they were sitting, they were eating the Passover meal, and Jesus drops the bomb. One of you guys is going to betray me. There's a Benedict Arnold sitting at the table, guys. There's a snake in the grass in this room. Can you imagine the air was sucked out of the room? Because this is Thursday evening. It's a Passover meal. The posture is one of relaxation. They're reclining, and the atmosphere is one of celebration. And as Jesus is dipping the bread, and as they're drinking the wine, and as the meal unfolds, he drops the bombshell. In verse 20, he answered and said to them, it is one of the 12. They were going, who is it? Like, who is it? Well, I'll at least narrow the number. It's one of the 12. It's one who dips with me in the dish. Jesus is saying, I'm actually going to hand someone a piece of bread, and that hand is going to betray me. And you know what's striking? It's not just that Jesus drops the bombshell. It's the worst kind of betrayal. No one immediately identifies the suspect Because look at what they say, verse 19. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, is it I? I mean, it's like they all line up, usual suspects, and they go, is it me? It's crazy. Is it I? Me? What do you do with that? Well, 
It would remind us of the danger of a false profession. Or as J.C. Ryle says in his commentary in Mark, there are some men will go to any length to hide their unconverted hearts with religiosity. That's a scary prospect. You can go to hell as quickly out the doors of a church as out the doors of a pub or a brothel. Judas was among the twelve. He was a false disciple. He was a false professor. His heart had never been converted. He was greedy, and he was a thief at heart. Scary. But here's the point I want to get. While Judas's sin is unique to him and dastardly and damning in the sense that he was a son of perdition, in a sense that he uniquely and grossly and gruesomely betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have to say that there is a bit of a Judas lurking in all of us. I mean, the disciples felt that. Is it me? Now, they knew that they weren't conspiring. Eleven of them did to betray the Lord Jesus. But I think they knew enough about themselves to go, boy, I'm scared. Am I capable of that? Is it me? And if we were to apply that in a secondary fashion, which it is, there is a Judas lurking in all of us. Our sin nature has Judas qualities to it. In fact, one writer says that's what sin is. It's an act of betrayal to the will of God, the glory of God, and the beauty of His righteousness. Every time we sin, we're acting like a Judas. We're betraying God's goodness. We are acting against His good will. And so just be challenged. We're all capable of giving Jesus a kiss on Sunday and betraying Him on a Monday. In our words, in our deeds, in our thoughts, in what we do, the sins of commission, and in what we don't do, the sins of omission. Listen to these words by David Garland in his NIV commentary on Mark's gospel. Mark does not present the Lord's Supper as a sacrament that brings blessing and assurance. The scene filled with high tension, sweaty palms, lumps in the throat, nervous anxiety, serves as a warning to readers. They are to examine themselves in precisely the same way as those first disciples did. One of them would betray Jesus. The gathered disciples did not immediately single out Judas as the guilty party. They looked to themselves. They wondered, surely not I. It's a great point. That's why Mark puts it in there. Before you and I go like Peter, not me, Lord. And yet Peter feels, I'd never do that. Really? Be careful. And then he says this, when the Lord's Supper is served at the end of a worship service, people may examine their watches more than their hearts and may be worried more about dinner than how they have betrayed Jesus in the previous week or how they might betray him in the next. It's a good word. Let's challenge ourselves. And as we come to the table, let's not look at our watches. Let's look at our hearts Let's look back and wonder, did we betray him this week? And are we in danger of doing the same this week? Thirdly, the pronouncement. The pronouncement. This is verses 22 to 25. The pronouncement of the Lord's Supper. And while they were eating, verse 22, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them, said, take, eat, this is my body. He did that with the cup, probably the third cup of the Passover. He gave thanks, then he gave the cup to them. They drank from it, and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's the last supper of the old covenant, but it's the first supper of the new covenant, a new promise by God that's built on an old promise by God that indeed He's going to pay for our sin 
through the means of an innocent sacrifice and shed blood, because the old covenant was ratified in the blood of the sacrificed lambs, Exodus 12. But the new covenant is going to be ratified in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have here the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, one of the ordinances of the church, two ordinances in the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they preach the gospel, don't they? In the Lord's Supper, we're reminded he died for me. In baptism, we're reminded he lives in me. And while the Lord's Supper speaks more than about his death, it is focused there. And while baptism speaks more than his resurrection, its focus is there. What can we take from this? If we were to kind of give the Lord's Supper a new look from its first introduction here in Mark 14, we would be told that we ought to look upward because Jesus takes the elements of the Passover. And given the fact that the Passover involved the death of a lamb, the shedding of blood, where death didn't visit those who trusted that blood, the same Jesus is our Passover. He's going to shed his blood for us. Our sins are going to be forgiven, and we will no longer face eternal death if we put our trust in him and what he did on the cross. And that is grounds for thanks, because Jesus twice gives thanks, one for the bread and then for the cup. And you know what? If we want a new look at the Lord's Supper, ours is a look upward in thanksgiving and worship. And so the Lord's Supper is significant. It inspires fresh worship and thanksgiving towards God. It inspires a looking back to the cross and what Jesus did there on our behalf. It inspires looking around to each other and acknowledging afresh this new commandment that we love one another because we belong to the family of God. It urges us to look forward because Jesus says here that indeed he's not going to drink with them until he drinks afresh in the kingdom. So that's the new look that we ought to give to the Lord's Supper. It's all here. There's a look up in worship. There's a look out in fellowship. There's a look back in appreciation. And there's a look forward to the fact that indeed all that he has done for us is not yet complete. But just for a moment, let's go back to that thought of commemoration because that's at the heart of this. He takes these symbols, these elements of the Passover, and he brings new meaning to them. This is the last supper under the old covenant. It's the first supper under the new covenant. And he's saying, look, my body's going to be broken and my blood's going to be shed and it's going to be for the end of redemption. For we read in verse 24 that this is being done for the many. His death is exemplary, but his death is substitutionary. He is the just who died for the unjust. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. What is happening to him is being done for us. That God might justly forgive our sin because his holiness has been answered in the death of the innocent, just victim, Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The new Passover whose blood protects us from God's wrath. Now Mark doesn't tell us What Luke tells us, and then Paul echoes, that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Break the bread in remembrance of me. Drink the cup in remembrance of me. Body broken, blood shed for you. Time's gone, but let me underscore that. Because 
This action is symbolic. This wasn't his body and this wasn't his blood. There's no way the disciples would have understood it that way since he was sitting among them. Plus, Jesus used metaphors where he says, like, I'm the door. Plus, drinking blood would have been forbidden by the law and the book of Leviticus. So this is symbolic. He's saying these emblems, these symbols speak of something significant. The bread broken will remind you of my body broken. The wine drunk will remind you of my blood poured out. And the point I want you to understand, while they are simple symbols, they don't become something other than they are. There's not a reenactment of Jesus' death. There's not a representation of Jesus to the Father in what we're doing today. But there is a remembering. But symbols can be potent. And remembering events can be life-changing. And that's what is meant to go on here. In fact, biblical remembering isn't passive. It isn't just a nod in the direction of an event or a work that God did. It's not simply an acknowledgement. You know what? That's true. That happened. It's more active than that. It's entering into that. It's recalling its significance. It's bringing it into your own experience and realizing that that event has done that for you, and it means that to you presently, and it makes it real and alive. Symbols have that potential. I mean, that was true of the Passover. It wasn't just a simple nod in the direction of God. It wasn't just simply an historical notation to every Israelite that God saved them in the past. This nation continued to need God's salvation and continued to need God's grace, and they entered into that, reenacting it, retelling it, experiencing it with joy and significance and heartfelt appreciation. See, symbols are significant. Our flag is a symbol, isn't it? The stars and the stripes are a symbol. But it's a potent symbol. You know what? When you find it on a barn, as we often did, painted across the Midwest, it was telling a story. It was telling a story of generations of families that have farmed that ground and sought to live the dream and the aspiration that America is. When it flutters in the wind around about the harbor of New York... It's like sending the signal, the lights are on, the door is open. And when immigrants see it, I can tell you it's not just a symbol. It's potent. Goosebumps are felt. Dreams are revisited. Freedom can be tasted. It's only a symbol, you say. Oh, it is a symbol. But symbols are potent when there's stories behind them, when lives are attached to them. When you see that on a soldier's uniform, you appreciate what that means in terms of your freedom and what it might mean for him or for her should they have to lay down their life. And that's why, at least I'll speak for myself, you can have a visceral reaction when you see it burned. Because it's not just a piece of cloth, it's a story, it's a dream, it's an aspiration. It's a sacrifice all wrapped up in it. For June and I, it's a commitment. We made a commitment to that flag just several years ago. Turned our back on our heritage and the former country we lived in. So that flag for me, every time I see it, reminds me of our journey and our story and all that's involved in it, God's providence and the goodness of people in this country. 
And so when I see it burned, I have a visceral reaction. And yet it's only a symbol. But symbols are potent, just like this cup and just like this bread. I'm telling you, simple, they're not becoming something other than they are. But when you handle them and you mix in your story and the promise of freedom and the sacrifice of the Savior, you won't be so distracted. You won't be so detached. You'll be moved. You'll be worshiping. You'll be anticipating. You'll be appreciating. Let me just put this in because I don't want you to miss it. It's so fresh and good. The pledge, verse 26 to 31. Again, we'll pick that theme up. Those verses are about, Judas is going to betray me, but guys, you're going to desert me. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep scatter. When I get arrested, you're gone. And then Peter, well, Lord, you know, that might be true of these guys, not me. I'll be the last man standing. Oh, Peter, come on. You're going to fall like the rest of them. In fact, you might just fall a little bit harder because of your pride and your presumption. You know, you're going to follow me so far, then you're going to find yourself sitting by a fire when I'm arrested, and you're going to deny you're a Galilean. You're going to deny you're a disciple of mine, and then the, the cock's going to crow like an alarm clock going off, and you're going to remember when I said this, and your heart's going to break. But here's the thing, the pledge. In all of that, there's a pledge, and the pledge is verse 28. Don't miss the pledge. Just give me a minute because you don't want to miss it. Guys, that's what's going to happen. But then Jesus gets beyond those events and he makes a pledge. But I'm going to go before you after my resurrection and I'll meet you in Galilee. And we're going to read about that in Mark 16, 7. It's amazing. You say, whoa, whoa, that sounds interesting. What's amazing about it? Don't miss it. He's committed to blessing them in the future. But there's going to be a lot of messy stuff happening in the middle but he's going to love them and lead them on the other side of it. And that's a wonderful pledge. Along with the prediction of scattering is one of reunion and restoration. Even before we do bad stuff, Jesus knows. You guys are going to leave me, and you better be quiet, Peter, because you're going to fall flat on your face. Jesus knew that, but he still loved them and promised to see them after he was raised in Galilee. And you know what? As flawed as these guys were, he was going to lay before them a plan to win the world with the gospel. Even before we do bad stuff, Jesus knows, still loves us, and is waiting on the other side to restore us. And that's for somebody. And surely it's for all of us. Because when we trip over ourselves, and in our presumption we promise what we don't deliver, and we walk around with our heads hanging low, ridden with guilt, and we wonder, you know what? I think God's done with me. I think my quota of grace is all used up. I'm not sure if his mercy will stretch any further than this day in my life. Wrong. That's the beauty of this. You're going to desert me? Peter, you're going to deny me but I'll see you guys on the other side of it. I'll restore you. I'll forgive you. I'll love you. And you know what? I'm going to use you in a way you can't imagine. Grace should never be used as an excuse for sin. 
And I've met people like that. I've sat in a room with men who know they're about to do something in terms of relationship, God forbids. And I've heard one of them say to my face, you know what, but doesn't he forgive? Sir, don't you use the grace of God to excuse your rebellion. So that's one side of it. His grace should never be used as an excuse to sin. But for those who have fallen genuinely, sin must never be allowed to blind us to the glories of His grace. That there is forgiveness when we fall. He does restore the repentant. He does use those who think they can't be used again. And that's what I don't want you to miss. Have you messed up? Have you mucked up? Well, God works with mud. Just read Jeremiah 18, where he's pictured as a potter. Israel's pictured as clay. He's molding him. It all breaks down. It all gets messy. But he remakes them. His hand is dirty with messy people. And if you've made a mess of it, if you've made a dog's dinner of it, he can still make something of you. After I'm risen, I'm going to go ahead and I'll see you. Please don't use the grace of God as an excuse for sin. But if you've sinned, don't let your sin blind you. Don't let your guilt blind you to the fact that there is grace for the fallen and there is restoration for the disobedient. Let's pray. Lord, we've exhausted our time, but not the text. But we pray that what we have read today would be an encouragement to us. You go before us. You prepare the way. We thank you for that reality. We thank you you meet us on the other side of our sin with your grace and forgiveness and the promise of restoration. We thank you for that atoning work of the Lord Jesus represented in the table of the Lord's Supper where his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Help us to remember him, but not passively, but actively. May we bring our hearts and our story and our aspirations to this experience so that the gospel will seem greater and Jesus more beautiful. And though God, may we not betray you this week. We realize that our sin nature is Judas-like. And so help us to submit ourselves to your leadership and your power. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. You're listening to Know the Truth and the conclusion of a poignant three-part sermon from Philip DeCourcy titled, There Will Be Blood. Listen to more messages from this Essential Jesus series online at ktt.org. It's Christmas time, and it's also the season to think about year-end giving, ways to use your treasure to build up God's kingdom. We'd be grateful to have you partner with us here at Know the Truth as we share the truth of God's Word on the radio and the Internet. But as we say quite often on this program, Know the Truth wouldn't even exist without the support of listeners like you. It's been an exciting year, and we've expanded to more stations, including Atlanta, Chicago, St. Louis, and Denver, 560 stations total. And that allows us to reach more people with the truth, especially in these days of tragedy and confusion and hopelessness. As we draw to the end of the year, your gift is more important than ever. When you give right now, it will help us take advantage of unprecedented opportunities to shine God's truth into the darkness. 
Give your most generous donation today when you call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And to send a check, address your envelope to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. As a thank you for your year-end gift, we'll send you the ESV Daily Devotional New Testament. This devotional provides insights into the biblical text, along with encouragement for godly living and daily readings from the New Testament. You can use this devotional throughout the coming year to keep your faith fresh and alive, or give it to someone you love this Christmas. Call right now, 888-644-8811, or go to ktt.org. Your gift will make the difference in someone's life this coming year. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to join us again Thursday as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, right here on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The Senate version of tax reform has a hidden problem which needs to be addressed. It would greatly increase the tax burden on companies which are in debt. When a company expands operations by, say, building a factory, they usually borrow the money to do it. The tax code has always allowed businesses to take the cost of that borrowing into account when they calculate their profit for the sensible reason that it is a cost of doing business. Tax reform is cutting that back, and the Senate version is cutting it back severely especially for companies that own a lot of heavy equipment such as miners and manufacturers, exactly the type of companies that we're trying to revive as part of the Trump growth agenda. If we get this wrong, during the next downturn, we may well see an epidemic of high growth and heavy equipment companies driven into bankruptcy by their inability to pay their old debt and their new taxes on it at the same time. I'm Jerry Boyer. At WAVA, 